The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, gang. How we doing? Awesome. Do me a favor. Uh, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 5 today. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high and we'll make sure that you get one. Um, we at Heritage believe that it's important that you have the ability to kind of track along with us and there's something about following God's word for yourself as well. If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you and I pray that the Lord would just use that to teach you more and more about his goodness and his grace. Um, but we're going to be in Ephesians 5, so if you'll get your Bibles or your iPads or whatever it is you're using to that point. I have a couple of announcements as we go. Um, Happy Valentine's Day. That made the announcements. Um, Easter basket blessings. Uh, we're going to be doing some, uh, putting some Easter baskets together for the children in the foster care system here in Southern Oregon. And uh, it's really simple. The only thing that you would need to donate towards that, individually wrapped Easter candies or and cash check donations to go towards it. And they're gonna take care of all that stuff from there. There will be a table set up starting next week with all the information and everything that you need, but it's a great opportunity to bless kids in the foster care system and they're gonna have things like, you know, uh, everything from coloring books and all kinds of stuff like that to help introduce some of these children to Jesus as well. So um, what a great thing to be able to reach out to the orphan, amen? So that's what we're gonna do. Um, fifth, flip side of 50, you have a Dutch lunch today at Wild River Pizza on Highway 62. Um, that is at noon, assuming Jeff's done by then. Um, also, the gathering, ladies, you have a gathering uh, this coming Friday night. Carrie Kilsey would be sharing her testimony, and you guys are not going to want to miss that. Um, Carrie has an incredible story of just what the Lord's done in her life. You're not going to want to miss that this week. Um, also, announcement, milestone number one for our Heritage Milestones program and milestone number two, baptism and faith commitments as well as parent-child dedication. That is coming up soon, so you're going to want to get a hold of Pastor Brent in the children's ministry or stop by the information table on your way out. Man, this is a lot of announcements. Uh, Man Camp 2016 is coming up first weekend in April. We're going to be taking some guys out to Eastern Oregon to Washington Family Ranch. That's the greatest camp you've ever seen. Uh, Sam and the guys will be doing worship up there, and we'll be gathering with Acts 29 Church from all over the Northwest. And uh, we got a pastor from um, Reno, Nevada that's coming up to do some teaching on the book of Titus. So it's gonna be a great time. Jump in there with me. I'd love to have you with me and, uh, and hoping to get to meet and get to know a lot of new guys through that. And um, that's all. Everybody say amen. Amen, right? So let's uh, turn to Ephesians chapter five. And uh, I'm gonna try, I always say this and then I regret it. But I'm, I'm going to try to keep it a little bit shorter this week for a, a lot of reasons. We've had some long ones lately. Amen. Um, but, but also, uh, I, I know, like for me, I don't know about you guys, man, it's been a rough week. It's been a hard week for a lot of people. And I have been fighting this cough that will not go away. It's been for like a month. I just got on antibiotics yesterday. So I need to say this because last week I was doing all this teaching about loving one another and all this kind of stuff. And then these people are wanting to shake my hands and I'm like, mm -mm, mm -mm. <laughs> so it's not that I'm, it's that I, I just don't want to get anybody. You do not want what I've got. So uh, let's see if we can get Jeff's voice through this. Um, as always, we'll open up by asking the Lord to empower everything that we do, especially this. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be in this place this morning, that you would teach us, awaken us, 
instruct us, guide us, change us, Lord, this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just awaken souls to the reality of who you are and what you've called us to be. And that, God, your church would leave this place closer to you than whence we came, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that even as we bow our heads now, that this is reflective of the posture even of our hearts as we approach your word. Lord, we don't want to be those who seek to rule over your word, but instead to humbly sit before it, realizing that these are the words from our God, creator, and Lord. And may we humble ourselves before it, seeking your will for our lives. I pray, God, as we always do, Lord, as your word says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my rock, my king, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and God's church says, amen. Amen. So we're in Ephesians chapter 5, making our way through the book of Ephesians. And um, just by way of recap, which is really important because we're pretty much going to say the same kind of thing again today, the book of Ephesians is a book about identity about who we are and how that identity shapes who we become, what we do, and how we live. Um, The book of Ephesians, particularly the first three chapters, are maybe the most, uh, maybe other than the book of Romans perhaps, the most eloquent, the most beautiful, the most doctrine-filled books in all the New Testament that describe the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It introduces us to who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, what has happened in us, and it's incredibly detailed, beautifully written, and really important that we understand the reality of the gospel. Um, As a result, it's often shocking for me and, and disappointing for me in talking with people over and over, some of which who have grown up in the church, and you say to them, hey, what is the gospel? And so many times within the church, that question is met with blank stares and, um, well, um, uh, so I'm giving you a crash course. We do this every week. We try to do this because it needs to be hammered home. We all should be able to really, like, boom, articulate the gospel because it's, it's the power of our salvation. It's everything to us, amen? And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. And you can break it down really into four words. The words would be creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you're taking notes, write those words down. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, we have been created by God himself. That we have been brought into existence by our creator. That he is our Lord. He is the sovereign God over all the earth. But we fell. In our sin, we rebelled against God and we have isolated ourselves from him. We've chosen to be our own gods, chosen to pursue our own pleasures, chosen to go after what we think is right instead of that which God has declared. And as a result of that, sin, death has entered into the world and we are destined for an eternity apart from God. But redemption, God is merciful, amen? And so God, knowing our plight, Knowing our weakness, knowing even our intentional rebellion, loved so much that he inserted himself into our story. He he became human. He, Jesus Christ, walked the earth in flesh. And he lived the perfect sinless existence that we never could. 
And when he went to the cross, upon his shoulders was placed the guilt, the shame, the punishment, the wrath of God towards the unbelieving sin that we have committed was all placed on Jesus Christ's shoulders and he paid the wages of our sin, which is death. He died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, but on the third day he rose again and has now ascended into heaven. And he says, to anyone who would believe that would repent of their sin and follow him, we are now robed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. Not because we go, now we gotta get our act together and do a bunch of good things. It's not the gospel. The gospel says that in understanding that Christ did the work for us and putting our trust in that, like my salvation is not in this, this, this. My salvation is in Jesus. I depend on Jesus alone. And he wraps me in his righteousness. He looks upon me as if I had never sinned at all. He almost, if you will, pretends we're Jesus. It sounds a little blasphemous, but think about it for a second. He looks at us and it says he sees us as he sees Jesus. He adopts us into the family of God. He gives us the same inheritance that he gives Jesus. He gives us the same empowering. He treats us as he does that son that lived so perfectly and died so mercifully. But that's not the end of the gospel. Don't stop there. Because then he says he's coming back again. And he's restoring all things. And he's making all things new. And so the wrestling match that we have between good and evil, between our old nature and our new nature, one day that will all be gone. Sin will be gone. Death will be gone. Cancer will be gone. Coughs will be gone. All of these things will be gone. And God is going to recreate the world and put everything back together the way it was originally intended to be. And we will be with him forever. Amen. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can stand and pray, let's go home. It's really all that needs to be said, right? But I'm a pastor, so I'm gonna say a whole lot more. That's what we do. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul lays these things out so clearly and he's hammering home salvation by faith, not works, lest any man should boast. The fact that we're Christians has nothing to do with any of the Christian stuff we do. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And he hammers this home for three chapters and then goes into chapter four and heavily now in chapters five and six and starts talking about now, because of this, here's how you live. And we've talked about this a lot and we're gonna talk about it again today. It's so incredibly important. You have to get the gospel before you get the Christian living. You, you can't live as a Christian until you're a Christian, right? That would just make sense. And so the idea is we have to understand the gospel. We have to be changed before our life changes because the Christian life is not one that we start on the outside and fix a bunch of stuff. The Christian life is one where the inside of a man is changed. God is doing a, a work in heart and the actions are the outpouring of the, what the spirit of God is doing within someone. This is really important. Um, Colossians, the book of Colossians is almost a parallel, though written to a different audience with some other different situations, but the scenarios are so similar to this letter being written to the Ephesian church. Um, the, the parallel there is really, really stark. And in Colossians, the, the, he kind of does the same thing. For the first two chapters of the book of Colossians, there's this grand telling of we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. We have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ, and it is all about Christ. The first two chapters, chapters of Colossians are about nothing but the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
And then in chapter three, it makes that same sort of transition. In fact, in my particular Bible, the heading for starting chapter three is put on the new self. Were you guys here last week? That's what we talked about last week, right? The old self and the new self. And in Colossians three, it starts out in verse one and says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And it goes on into Christian living. Very similar to Ephesians. It talks about everything from roles in the home, about ministry and about reaching out to other people, about interacting with people within the church. It's the same formula. But he says it very specifically and intentionally. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Because you have no hope at living the Christian life until you've actually become a Christian. You cannot display the fruits of the Holy Spirit if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You cannot allow the life of Jesus to come through you if you don't have Jesus with you, amen? And so that's what this is about. And so we want to always make an emphasis in our children's ministries, in our youth ministries, in here, everywhere, we always want to make an emphasis that says, guys, the gospel comes first. All Christian living that we do is gospel-centered. It flows out of the reality of who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. We don't want to get the cart before the horse and start going, you need to do these things because Jesus is Lord and you'll be in trouble if you don't. Or you need to do these things because Jesus will save you if you do. Some of us have grown up in those sorts of paradigms, amen? It's heavy. It's tiring, it's exhausting, and it's unfruitful to live that way. So we always want to put the gospel first, and we preach grace. He's forgiven you. He loves you. It's not about what you did right or wrong. He just plain loves you, and so he wants to save you. The problem, though, is that we, and I speak of humanity in general, we are a people, especially in Western culture, of excess and imbalance. Amen? We are. We take things too far or we take them nowhere near far enough. And so we see this in this kind of teaching. So some of us grew up in churches that had really none of the gospel-centered, understand who you are in Jesus first, he loves you, grace, grace. We grew up in churches that just pounded you, amen, some of you? Where you were pounded, do this, do this, do this, don't do this. God's looking down on you, God's watching you. Christians don't do this, Christians, and you just pound, 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 pound. And without that grace to restore your soul, man, it's just exhausting. But, but then we can go way too far the other way. And so you can get to a point where you're like, it's grace, 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 and nothing we do matters anywhere whatsoever. It's a, uh, the theological term for it is called antinomianism. Antinomianism means biblical morality, biblical lifestyle, Christian living, moralistic teaching is of no more place in the church. It doesn't matter anymore. The, the only thing we should do is talk about the grace of God over and over and over and over. Let God determine what he's gonna do in different people's lives. Let God be the one who shapes people. But as Christians, we have no business teaching such things. We just talk about grace over and over and over. It's not a small group that teaches such things in our culture today. There's some very well-known teachers that if they're not teaching that straight up, they are flirting with the boundaries like crazy. It's called antinomianism. But the reality is this, you don't have to read too much New Testament to understand the Bible clearly cares about how we live our lives. Amen? The Bible clearly 
cares. The Bible clearly has things to say about how we live as Christians. Clearly. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, Romans would be the other book that even in more detail declares the gospel in all its grandeur. So clearly and so shockingly that a lot of people find it controversial. But then it comes in in Romans 12, 1, and he says, now, now that you understand the gospel, now that you've been saved, now that you've been changed, listen, you need to, and I'm appealing to you, think about that. Paul's saying, now listen, brothers, he says, begging you, I'm appealing to you, don't be like the world anymore. Don't conform to the things that you see out there anymore, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Start thinking about things differently. Through the lens of the gospel, view the world differently. You're different. Your identity is different. You've changed, and so you're going to start living a different way. The Bible clearly cares about how we live. Amen? We are saved by grace alone. There is nothing you can do to earn salvation. But to the people who are the children of God, who have been saved and adopted into his family, he cares how you live. And the Bible tells us all over the place, Christians live like this, out of their identity in Christ. And this is where Paul is here in Ephesians chapter 5. This teaching is right in line with what we just read in Romans, what we read in Colossians, and in all of his other letters. And so in Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 6. It says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. Just a little parenthesis before we keep going in the reading here. Remember last week, we're coming out of, he's saying, hey, immoral living. Well, shoot, we can see it right here in chapter 5. He says here, be imitators of God as beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so now he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's a, that should be a word of warning to the antinomian. That should be a word of warning to the person that says to the Christian, hey, it doesn't matter anymore what you do. I know Christians say, well, we don't do this, we don't do this. But listen, God has forgiven you by grace, hasn't he? Yeah. And it's not about your works? Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. He doesn't care. He'll forgive you. He has forgiven you. He sees you as Christ anyway. It doesn't matter. Paul's saying, listen, don't let anyone deceive you with what he calls empty, or in other words, unfruitful words. For us to say or take the teachings of grace from the Bible and then separate them completely from the call to Christian living is empty, it is vain, it is unbiblical. And Paul specifically says, don't be fooled. This matters. 
I mean, look, I, I will talk about Christian liberty as much as probably anyone you guys have heard in this valley. I will trumpet the freedoms we have in Christ. I don't want anything to do with legalism in our church because I hated legalism growing up in it. But I'll tell you right now, the way we live still does matter. It doesn't mean we get to separate ourselves from these things. And for any of us to take the word of God and to ignore the commands of scripture and only focus on the grace of scripture and then say our lives don't matter anymore, Paul says, you're being deceived. Do not listen to anyone. Now in this particular case, Paul's talking about those that are outside the church, most likely. He's talking about the cultural influences that are on the people of Ephesus that are talking them into or calling them towards sensuality and all this kind of living, covetous living. Isn't it amazing how people who are in sin tend to not want to be alone in it. They want to draw more with them. And this culture is doing this and he's saying, don't be deceived. Yes, you are saved by grace apart from works, but don't be deceived. This matters, church. So heritage, we will preach grace all the time, amen? But heritage, the life we live matters. Moral living matters. Christian living matters, amen? And so here's what he says. He says, let no one deceive you. And then verse seven, he says, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Are you seeing the identity pattern keep coming up over and over? He says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The focal point, if you will, of this paragraph that we're looking at and dissecting this morning is really right here in verse eight and nine. It says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Christian, you once were in darkness. You once were darkness, now you are light. So walk as children of light. And when you're walking as children of light, you will display fruit that is in keeping with this. The fruit of the light is found that is all in, it, in all that is good, right, and true. Goodness, righteousness, truth. Those are the things that we, as people of God, of children of light, are to walk in and to display. So it matters how we live. And our identity should determine how we live. And our identity as children of light then determines that we would live in such a way that we display these characteristics of light. But here's the thing. Why? Why? Why do we need to do this? That's a really important question. How many of you grew up with parents who would tell you to do something and you would say, why? And they say, just because I said so. How many of you have ever heard that before? Every hand should be up. But here's what I've learned. I, I've been, been uh, doing a lot of, of leader, I, I'm, I'm part of a leadership coaching thing where um, a guy who does leadership training and coaching in, in down in San Diego, um, I, I'm learning from him regularly a couple times a month, been studying a lot of different stuff. And one of the things that we've looked at a lot in our time working with either North Coast Church out of San Diego or with the guys up at Western Seminary in Portland is the why as a leader is really, really important. 
You're a bad leader if you just say, because I said so. Why matters. So business leaders, teachers, parents, everybody listen up and hear this. If you have a decision coming up and you think this is what is best for our family, this is the direction that's best for our business, this is the direction that's best for our ministry, you should spend the vast majority of your time on getting across the why before you worry about the do. If you can get the why across to the people that you're leading, they'll be on board with the do. They'll follow. They'll do what's necessary. The thing you have to convince those you lead of is why this thing is the best thing or the most necessary thing for us to do. It's one of the things, look, we we rolled out church membership just a couple of weeks ago. If you missed on that, uh, make sure you go back and listen a couple of weeks ago. If you still have applications, it seems like everybody I talk to is like, yeah, we're doing it. Have you turned yours in? No. Well, I did mine this week, so I'm ahead of all of you. But, um, but here, here's the thing. With regards to church membership, it was two years ago that we started looking at that and realizing that this is something that might need to happen in our church. Two years ago. And we've spent two years building towards this, preparing towards this, and teaching towards this. And so then when it came time to do that, and I preached just a few weeks ago talking about this, I'm not going to spend all my time talking about the what. It's going to look like this, and you need to do this. And you, what, do we, what do we spend all our time talking about? Why? And who cares what we do if we don't know why we're doing it? So why are we doing this? So Paul, why? Why do we have to live this way? I mean, antinomianism to some of us seems really wrong, especially if we grew up in the church. Of course, morality should matter. It's all over the Bible, but why does it matter? Why does it matter that we live this way if salvation is by grace? And here's what it is. I'm gonna give you three things, just three. I hope you're taking notes. They are this. Number one, godly living is in keeping with our best interests. That's the first one. It's just plain better for you if you do. If your only motives are, I want my life to go as well as I possibly can, then you're going to want to live a godly life. That's just the the way that you're going to want to do it. God has designed man in such a way that he knows what works and he knows what doesn't work. And God has given us wisdom in his word that helps us navigate life on all sorts of practical levels. We, We have whole sections of the Bible that are referred to just as the wisdom literature, What that means is go into these books and it's gonna help you discern and learn about some things, some wisdom that you can just walk out that will help you in life. It's just plain better for you. Because you could say to the people of Ephesus if time plays out long enough while you're there or people in our culture today when they say sexuality doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. We can have multiple partners. We can, we can have uh, gay marriage. We can have all these different things. It doesn't matter. It's just sexuality. And Jesus never specifically talked about it. It's not true, but that's what you'll hear. And they'll say, so it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live. Well, I would say, go talk to the people after they've walked in that long enough. Find out how they're doing. Find out what the suicide rate, drug addiction rate is among Uh, porn stars or prostitutes or strippers or people that are in the sex industry. Go find out how well they're doing if they can do whatever it is they want. Look how marriages and families are affected by some of these kind of things. Go see what the depression rates are. Go talk to counselors in town who deal with everything from sex addiction to um, sex offender issues. Go see if the fruit of living any way you want with regards to sexuality is good for you. 
There is no one on earth that would argue that that's good for you. So covetousness, I want, I want, I want. Go talk to some people about that. Go find out. Is a constant drive, I want more money, more money, more money, more money. Do you know how many people are dying all the time with all the money in the world and totally and completely miserable and empty? It's not gonna satisfy you. That's not what is best for you. We are called to live a godly life and the, the life built upon the word of God is just plain a good idea. So for example, let's consult some of what we would call wisdom literature. Let's go to the book of Psalms actually and let's go to Psalms chapter one. It's my favorite Psalm. And look what Psalm one says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And look what it says, verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Think about that. You ever, we're, we live in Oregon. We've gone out into places like Eastern Oregon. You guys have seen it before when everything starts to dry out and everything's turning brown. But if there happens to be a stream coming down from the mountains, don't we see that green ribbon of trees that'll be right around? Everything else is dying, but because that stream's there and because these trees and shrubs are actually rooted by that water, though everything around them dries up, they're sustained. We've all seen this, right? And this is a biblical principle. He's just saying, listen, the man who is living according to God's word, he is rooted in something that will keep him stable. He won't wither. The people that are rooted in everything else, it's going to dry up. It's going to wither. It's going to leave them hanging and disappointed. But for the man of God, you will produce fruit. You will be fruitful. Psalm 1 is a call, a plea, just as Paul pleading with the Ephesians or pleading with those in the book of Romans, pleading, like, listen, this is for your best interest to live this way. Our problem is, is since Genesis chapter 3, when we decided that we would eat the fruit and determine our own idea. Like, we want to know what's good and evil. We don't want to depend on God to tell us what's good and what's not good. We want to discern this for ourselves. We can do that all we want but we're always gonna be found wanting when we're rooted into anything other than God because he created us. This is where the creation part of that four-part definition of the gospel is really important. It goes back to the why. Why? Why does God know? How does God know? Because he created you. He designed you and everything else in the world. And our own desire to choose right and wrong is what broke the world in the first place. So it would just be logical that it's a bad idea to keep following that track, wouldn't it? And yet we do. We so do. But there's another little side benefit to this too, by the way. Not only is it in your best interest in every practical area of life, but, but Christian, are you dealing with doubt? Are you, are you ever finding yourself in those seasons like, man, am I even saved? Is God with me? I don't, I don't know. The, the book of John, 1 John 2, 3 says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we, what? Keep his commandments. One of the great benefits to desiring and seeking to the best of our ability, empowered by the spirit of God, to live a godly life is that he will continually be encouraging you. As you're being led by the Spirit, the Spirit is continually testifying to your own soul that you're his. 
man, so much of my life, especially when I grew up in that more legalistic background, I used to go to bed every night and lay in bed terrified that if there was a sin I'd committed that day that I couldn't remember and I didn't repent of, then I was in trouble. And I would lay in bed every night, just, oh, what do I need to repent of? It's gonna be on that big screen in heaven and God's gonna kick me out. I've gotta figure this out, there's no peace in that. And yet you read Jesus where he says, come to me all that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I'm like, I'm not resting, I'm, in fact, I'm laying up at night trying to figure this stuff out. But I've never met anyone who's walking in a season of just, they're just following the Lord and being led by the Holy Spirit. I've never met anyone in that season struggling with doubt in their salvation, ever. And we all are gonna have our seasons but if you're in a season of doubt, Christian, one of the best things you can do is, and we're called to, is just take stock in our lives. What kind of fruit are we producing? So godly living is in keeping with our best interests. The second one is this. Godly living is in keeping with our identity. We've been saying this a lot, amen? It's the book of Ephesians. This is what it is. Godly living is in keeping with our identity. Verse eight, at one time you were darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, this is awesome. Any of, you, any of you that are ever like runners or you're exercising, maybe right now you're in a season of life where it's still close enough to the new year. Maybe you haven't totally bailed on your gym membership just yet. Um, but if you're like me, like I like to run when I can breathe and not cough. And, and when I'm running, a lot of times though, once I start, I, let's say I go run for an hour. What I'm also doing is arguing for an hour. That's what I do. I start running and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna run five miles. And then I get about 500 yards and I'm like, nah, three. <laughs> no, five, you need to do five, dude, because you ate a burger yesterday for dinner and so you need to make up for that. Besides, man, the pear blossom's coming up, you need to up your mileage. Yeah, but it's kind of rainy and it's Monday and I don't know if I really wanna do some of this over here and, and uh, my kids are at home. I should spend some time with my kids at home for sure and do that. Yeah, but the better health you're in, the more you're able to take care of your kids and work with that stuff. And that's a godly thing. And you want to be an example to them and to the church. You're a pastor, you know. Yeah, but my dog's with me and the pads of his feet are really soft and he might get blisters as he's going around over there. That dog would run circles around you, dude. Just keep going. The dog is not your issue. You're just looking for places to assign blame. Shut up. You shut up. And this is how I run. This is how I run, right? Well, Tim Keller says this. And I when I read this quote, I was like, yes. Tim Keller says, the essence of Christianity is arguing with yourself and winning. Think about that just a second. The essence of Christianity is arguing with yourself and winning. It is, man, what do I do here? I don't know what I wanna do. My flesh wants to do this but I am a child of God. And this is who I am. And constantly preaching our identity to ourselves in our sin to remind ourselves this is who I am. Paul is constantly calling people back to this. And it's so clear. Like, look what he actually writes here, by the way. He does not say, hey, you were once in darkness. Now you're in light. God's changed your environment. That's not what he says. What does he say? You once were darkness. You, not your environment, you were darkness. I, I shouldn't keep talking to you guys when I say that, right? You, these guys are like, yeah. <laughs> he says, you were darkness, and now you are light. Therefore, 
walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good. Anybody watch the presidential debate last week or any of them, any party? Like, I don't know about you, but if my kids talk to one another the way they talk to each other in these debates we've been seeing all this election season, I would ground them. Don't you just long to see that one guy step up as a leader who acts presidential? That we can say, there's my president. Don't you long for that? No leader will ever save us or our nation until Jesus Christ is here. We do need to know that, amen? But this is the idea. This is like, I, I, if I want you to be, even as a church, when we, when we are looking for people, for elders and leaders in the church, we're, not, we're looking for one who is. Look at him, he is leading, he is elding, he is shepherding, that's who we're looking for. And Paul comes here and he says, listen, you once were darkness, but you're not that anymore. So don't go back to that anymore, this is not you. Remember we talked about it last week, what is proper, he says earlier in chapter five, does not mean what is like, you know, don't think cotillions or any of that kind of stuff. Like think what is proper means it's what is fitting and in match in line with the character of who you actually are. You're a child of God. And so we walk in that way. We carry ourselves with a certain, I'll say it this way, we carry ourselves with a certain dignity as God's child. Not snobbish pride, but a certain dignity as a child of God that says, I don't have any business being there. I don't have any business doing that. I'm a child of God. And that, listen guys, this is why you need to know that, that definition of the gospel, it tends to get pushed on us. Like you need to know the gospel so you can go tell all your neighbors. That's true, right? But first you need to know the gospel because you need to know the gospel. Like you should be preaching the gospel to yourself constantly, I'm saved. Because then when you sin and you do fall, and we do fall, right? We can feel like we're darkness again. We can feel shame, we can feel guilt. But what's the reality? We come back to the truth and go, wait a minute. I am a child of God. My sin is not what, or my, my good works is not what defines me as a person. It is the work of Christ that defines me as a person. I am a child of God, and so I want to live in this way. This is who we are. You know, it's really interesting. In, in, in the, the Old Testament, Moses comes before God, and he says, God, show me your glory. Remember that? Show me your glory, your essence, who you are. God, I want to see you. And God tells him, like, you can't handle the truth. Is basically what he says. He says, you can't handle everything about me. But he says, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna put you in this cleft in the rock and I'm gonna pass before you and I'm gonna let you see my back. You're just gonna get a glimpse of my glory and who I am because you could not see me and even live. His holiness is so powerful and so real. And so Moses goes up there and it says, let me just read it to you. It's in Exodus 34, but he says, says this, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, who but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers of our children and our children's children. And it gets very Old Testament. We don't have time to break all that stuff down today. What's your point, Jeff? The point of it is this. When Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Show me who you are. 
what God declares to him is his name, in other words, his attributes is what he's saying there. And it's goodness and mercy and all of these things. And if you guys remember last week, communicable attributes of God, that's what these things are. And we are children of light. More specifically, we're children of God. I mean, think about it. when Jesus is teaching the guys to pray, he doesn't say, okay, guys, start out like this. Dear Lord, dear creator, dear king of everything that's there. What does he tell them to do? Our father. Your identity is you're a child of God. And in a functional family, few of, fewer and fewer of which ex- exist anymore, in a functional family, what little boy doesn't grow up and want to grow up to be like dad? It's interesting, we have this men's Bible study going on on Thursday mornings at 6.30, and just this week, the topic was a man and his family, and we were talking about some of those things. There's about 25 or so guys in there, I can't remember the number, but, but um, I asked, hey, just out of curiosity, all these things that we're talking about, how many would you say, man, my dad was a godly man who, to the best, he was just doing the best that he could, but I had a good role model, two, two, and that's completely common. So for a lot of us, the idea of wanting to grow up to be like dad is a pretty foreign concept, but this is just the reality of it. We are called to glorify God, and glorify God doesn't just mean standing in a sanctuary and singing worship. It means exhibiting the characteristics of God. It means mirroring him. And think about it. So Moses goes to the mountain. He's in in the presence of God. He sees God's attributes and what God is like, and he comes down the mountain, and what was going on with his face? It was glowing. There was light He was bringing light down into the places where the people were. And so too, we are children of light and we carry that light because of our identity in Christ into the world around us, which leads us into the third thing. And that's this, godly living is in keeping with our mission. Godly living is in keeping with our mission. Look what he says, verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes down on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Now, some translations actually add words there or change the words around, and they say, God, the wrath of God comes down on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. Do not have anything to do with them. Is that what the Bible says? No. Not true. The Bible nowhere says do not have a friendship or an association with unbelievers. If anything, the Bible calls us to have way more friendships with unbelievers out there than any of us in this room probably have. What he's saying is you are not to enter into their sin patterns with them. I can be friends with a guy who's a part of a sinful lifestyle without engaging in that sinful lifestyle as well. But what does he say? Well, it elaborates even more in verse 11. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Now think about this for a second. It seems a little weird. Paul's saying, hey, we're not even gonna talk about the things that they do, but we'll expose them for everyone to see. Doesn't that seem worse? 
That seems worse. Why would you expose the things that they're doing if it's so gnarly that you don't even want to talk about it? But it's, it's a different kind of thing. It's a different kind of expose. As the passage goes on, it says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Listen, there are times when we as Christians need to stand up and speak out strongly and loudly against sin. There are times when we as Christians need to point a finger and say, this is not okay. But what Paul's talking about here is the general lifestyle of a Christian and how they live. And he's saying, you need to live in such a way that the godly living that you are a part of, as you live out of your Christian identity, it brings light to everyone around you. And by even comparison and fellowship around them, it exposes a sinful lifestyle for what it is. And what does that mean? For being unfruitful, for being empty, for being a dead end for the people that are around us. But the purpose is not shaming. The purpose is saving. Like he wants you to live this way because you are living and representing that which can save those whose entire life is dedicated to something that's gonna kill them. And so he says, just in the way that you carry yourself, it's important, Christian, that you live a moral life because there are people in this immoral lifestyle that are dying and if you're doing the exact same thing, they don't know there's other options. They don't experience the joy in following God. And there is joy in following God. I should have made a fourth one because there's joy in it, Jesus says. Happy are you when you do these things. And they're seeking joy in these things that will leave them hanging and will ultimately lead them to eternal death. They'll go to hell. He said, be different. Present another option. Show something else. Live. That's what the Bible talks about. We are the light of the world. We're a city on a hill. We're a place of refuge where people can see there's something different going on here. And the purpose of all of it, as Jesus teaches, is that they might see our good works. They might see your chaste behavior. They might glorify God in heaven because of it. It's the same thing that the Bible teaches to unbelieving wives, is it not? If your husband isn't a believer and you are, can you divorce? And the Bible says no. But instead, what does it say? Live an obedient, godly life that he might be saved by your chaste behavior. That as he sees how you live, that he might understand the realities of the gospel. He'll know there's something different. He'll know there's a different thing to live for, another way of going, and that you might save people. Listen, light eliminates fog and confusion and darkness. How many mornings do we wake up and the fog comes in in the darkness and you can't see, it's just gloomy and dark, but leave that sun up there for long enough and it burns off, usually. Southern Oregon can mess with my analogies from time to time, right? But do you realize how much confusion is in among people out there? The voices that are coming at them, the things that are being dangled in front of people, live for this, live for this, live for this. There's chaos, confusion, and darkness, and you have in you the hope of heaven, the balm of Gilead. You have the spirit of God which can save them. And so he wants us to have relationships with unbelieving people. I don't care how gnarly they are, bring light into the situation that maybe even by our own works, our own good behavior, people will see, wow, there's something different about them. This is what we're called to do. Light brings life. So it's important how we live, amen? That's why. So in two minutes, or slightly longer, what's how? 
Here's the how. And we're going to do it in just a second when Sam gets up here. And Sam, you can come on up. Place some of the guilt tar up here while you're doing some of that, would you? Here's how it is. If you're not taking notes, start. Everybody, if you're not taking notes, everybody start taking notes from now on. These are good things. Like if you were going to school to learn something and didn't take notes, you wouldn't learn nothing. This is important stuff here. It says in, uh, what's the first thing that we do? What are we talking about? Living this Christian life. It's hard, right? Can we just admit it's hard? Everybody say amen. So how do we do it? Number one is repent. The first thing you do is repent. You go, well, I repented when I got saved. You should repent probably every hour, at least every day. And if you're waiting until once a week, you're in trouble. The Christian life is a life of continual repentance because the Bible's changing us from one degree of glory to the other. We're wrestling off that old man and we're turning from sin and turning to God. So that's what repentance means. Christians aren't perfect. We fall into sin and darkness too. If we didn't, Paul wouldn't even be writing this letter, right? The difference is God turns the light on for us, doesn't he? You ever be in the dark and someone turns the light on all of a sudden, you're like, oh, whoa. That's what God does. Jeff, what are you doing? Why, what are you doing here? This isn't you. And so we are in constant repentance as believers. You cannot walk in the love and light of Christ until you have repented from the sins and repented from the temptations of the world and turned to Christ. So step one in how we live that life, we repent. Step number two is we discern. Comes up in this passage, comes up in Romans chapter 12. We discern, we need to discover God's will for our lives. And a lot of times when you talk to people about that, we need to find out God's will for our lives. We go into this like um, almost cosmic, like what does God specifically have for me? Does he want me to move to Vermont and open a home church? Or does he want me to go to Cuba and start mission work? Or what, is, what does he want me to do? But, but God, and, and we treat God's will as if it's some mysterious thing that we hope a hand will come down and write on the foggy mirror, Jeff, you are to do this. But God has already given us every ounce of his will for our lives. And his will is that we be saved and that we glorify him by bringing and living a godly life and teaching other people about Jesus. Now, where you do that, I'm not so sure God too often cares. I tend to believe that God gives you a lot of freedom. Like, hey, he's given you gifts. What do you enjoy doing? Go do that. But you're on mission as you go. Hey, what do you like doing? Oh, go do that. But you're on mission as you go. Does God give specific calls at times? Of course he does. But people go, what is God's will? You can discern it by reading his book. Because this is what teaches us about the character of God. This is what teaches us what it looks like to live a Christian life. So you will never be able to live a Christian life if you're not reading the Christian book. And I mean this one. So be in the word. Be in the word. Number three, ask for power. Ask for help. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as our helper. It says that our change from one degree of glory to another as God is molding us into the image of Jesus is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that the change in us that needs to happen for us to get better and better, if you will, of, of living this Christian life is a work of the Holy Spirit, so we should probably turn to him from time to time and be led by him and just ask that the Spirit of God, I mean, think about it, Galatians 5, 
The works of the flesh are evident. I think I have this text. We can put it up. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then what? Everybody say that next word. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If the fruit of the, this type of living that we're talking about is a fruit of the Spirit, then we need to, church, depend more and more on the Holy Spirit's role in our day-to-day lives or we're never gonna pull this off. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So you go before the Lord in prayer and you say, Lord, you're with me today. May your Spirit empower me to live in a way that honors you. And then we trust him. We follow him. You listen to those prompts. When there's conviction of sin, you obey that prompt and you go. And that leads us to the last one, number four. Sorry, Nike. Just do it. Just, you just do it. I mean, one of the things that, that is often held in tension is it God's work completely or is man's effort involved? Yes. It is a work of the Spirit where God empowers us to do the work. But you even see in the text, he's pleading with you to do it. And some people would say, that sounds sinful. You're calling human effort in. Yes, we are. Human effort empowered by the Spirit of God, guided by the Word of God in a person whose life has been changed by God. Get on your feet and just go do it. But I'll fail. Then you go back to number one. Repent. We repent. We discern. And then we ask for power and we do it again. This is the pattern of Christian living. This is how we do this over and over. We fall, all right, I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna discern. Okay, Lord, when this situation comes up, what is your will in this situation? What does your word tell me to do? And then I'm gonna ask for help. Lord, help me to do this. I'm weak. My flesh is weak. And we go do it over and over and over again. So we're gonna take just a moment right now. Can you guys kill some lights? We're gonna get some mood going on here if we can. That's what we do, right? I want you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. And right now you're going to take just a a minute because you know you. If these screens up here played the last week of our lives for everyone to see, what would people think? Every Christian is to live a life of continual repentance. So take just a minute right now. Go before the Lord. And let's repent of our sin. heads bowed still and eyes closed the word calls us to discern 
what the will of God is, that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The word gives us the perfect will, but if you're saved, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then we know even from his new covenant that he writes his will even upon your heart. What's God telling you to do? What change is God calling you to make? How is God calling you to handle a certain situation differently than before? Just take a moment and ask him to speak to you. to abide in Christ and that apart from him, we can do nothing. So situations in life, the things that God might be speaking to your heart about right now, you cannot do this in your own power and you were never designed to. So take just a moment right now and ask for help. Ask the spirit of God to lead you and guide you to be able to walk in goodness, righteousness, and truth in these different situations in our lives. Let's ask the Lord for help. far short of you, your word, your glory, your holiness. So God, we use this time to repent our sin before you, to ask for your help in turning away. Lord, even your word says repentance is a gift from God. And so Lord, we thank you even for the gift of this time, this reminder, and we pray God that you would empower us to turn from sin. We pray God you would empower us to discern your will for our life even calling us back to your word. Maybe some of us have fallen away from it lately and we need to return to your word. And I I thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, may we depend on it more than ever. And then Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to guide, empower, and lead us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So will you empower your church? God, even right now, as we close in song, we seek to worship you, to turn our attention to the only thing that matters. That's you, Lord. And I pray that even there, your spirit would infuse us, Father. Empower even our worship to understand who you are. To understand how good you are and how holy you are. To worship you in spirit and truth. And then, Lord, that we might leave this place and actually do it that we might not be that double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, that we might instead be the tree planted by the river of living water, being fruitful. Lord, make us a fruitful church, a fruitful people. Don't let our leaves wither, Lord. And I pray that as others look at us, 
I pray, Lord, that they would understand how good and powerful and mighty you are. May they glorify you and may people be saved as you empower us to live in such a way that honors you. Lord, help us to be like dad. In Jesus' name, let's stand and sing.